0: A ministry theme. We we haven't introduced a ministry theme this year. Last year we were looking at what it means to worship, what true worship looks like. And I think inadvertently I, I might have focused too much on
1: those regulative
0: pieces of worship. But I think it's clear in Scripture what genuine worship looks like. Psalm 100, beginning in verse 4, says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Have you ever thought of the interaction or the connection between thankfulness and sincere worship. Do the two go together? Is it possible to worship God without thanksgiving in our hearts? Is it possible to acknowledge the goodness of God and to live without thanksgiving that simply bubbles out from under us? When writing to the church in Thessalonica, as Paul often did, he introduced his text with a portion of thanksgiving. Now it's somewhat debated whether this is just formulaic or if this is something unique to Paul's style of writing letters. And we know normally when we write letters, there's a formula that we follow. We say, dear, and then who we're writing to, and then we jump into the body of the text. Paul had this extra element when we look through the letters that Paul wrote, He normally started by following that formulaic introduction, saying who's speaking, who he's speaking to, and then a general introduction. And then he jumps into, we give thanks, or we're thankful for you, or we're thankful when we remember you. 1 Thessalonians is a little bit unique. You see, in most of these letters, it's maybe a few sentences, maybe one really long sentence because it's Paul. But he writes about thankfulness for a portion of the text, and then he moves into the body of the letter. We're picking up in verse 2 this morning, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I want to just point out before we get to that, that Thanksgiving has completely saturated the body of Paul's letter. Some commentators, when writing about this thankfulness, say that it doesn't end until chapter 3, that Paul is really just giving thanks for the whole of chapter 1, for the whole of chapter 2, and then the first part of chapter 3. I think that's astounding when we consider the leadership problems that the church was having the confusion about end times that the church was having, and their willingness and ability to persevere through the trials and persecution that the church was suffering at the hands of the Jews that had run him out. Well, let's look at our text. We'll just look at the first verse in this beginning of Thanksgiving and begin to understand that this is more than just a formula. This is more than just something that we say. That the psalmist, when they wrote Psalm 100 or Psalm 95 or Psalm 130, when they wrote about giving thanks to the Lord, that this wasn't something passive, that this wasn't something that just kind of sounded spiritual or something that was uh, just a part of what they were doing, but it was part and parcel to genuinely worshiping God. What is the purpose of humanity? What is the purpose of mankind that we Give glory to God and enjoy Him forever. How do we do that but through sincere and genuine worship? Let's pray and we'll look at our text. Father in heaven, I pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that it would have an impact on our lives. Help us, Lord, to uh, just revive us, Lord, this morning as we come together. Help us to have the energy that we need to engage with your word. Help us not to be tired or fatigued, but give us what we need. Give us your word, Lord, that it would have an impact not just on the rest of today, but on the rest of our lives as we consider what it means to be a thankful people. Open the eyes of our heart, O Lord, that we may be able to behold the wonderful truth found in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are only looking at one verse this morning. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. My my personal translation is just a little bit different, but it's constantly making mention of you in our prayers. I think that's a little bit closer to the Greek, but I don't think it actually is consequential, but maybe I just wanted to mention that so that you knew how smart I was. Let's get into the text. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. How do we pray? Well, that's a question that stops a lot of people. Well, we pray, we we get in the right posture, right? We make sure that we're sitting the right way, and then we clasp our hands together, and that establishes some sort of um, magical link between us and God that allows us as we speak for it to be directed towards Him. Well, we know it's actually not that complicated. How do we pray? I've contended before that the correct posture of prayer actually has nothing to do with how you're sitting, but actually the attitude in which you sit. What makes genuine and sincere prayer prayer is that we have an attitude as we come before God that we have First of all, the right motivations. And this is really what I want to address this morning. From this text, I want to pull out what is the example given for us and answering that question, how do we pray? And the first part, as I've alluded to, is that we pray with the proper motivation. might ask it this way. Journalists like to use the questions, who, what, when, where, why? Why do we pray? We pray because we need it. We pray because we are dependent upon it. As a matter of fact, some of the issues that the church in Thessalonica was facing was that they didn't have this leadership structure well-defined among them, and that caused a lack of confidence in the leaders that they did have. The confidence of one's faith can waver when there's no confidence in the sincerity and integrity of the leaders who are imparting the faith. When we look out onto the the Christian landscape and we see the numerous examples of faithful men that have begun to fall away from the world. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but if you get online, there's a trend. It used to be evangelicals, but now there's a whole swath of people calling themselves exvangelicals, talking about how they were not delivered from their sin, not delivered from a lifestyle that disobeyed God, but how they were delivered from legalism and how they were delivered from traditionalism and how they were delivered from all of the problems that they saw in the church. When I read or even watch some of these uh, proponents who say they've been delivered from the church, what I see is very short-sighted. The problem is I agree with a lot of what they have to say. The church is not without its problems. Anytime you take sinful people and you put them together, you'll have problems. But they think the answer is running away or turning away from this. Do you know what the answer is when you find the church with problems? To redirect its focus back where it belonged all along. On the saving power of Jesus Christ. On the magnitude of life that is available through obedience to Him. Through the blessing of a special relationship with Him. And they say, well, I can't do this. No one listens to me. Well, sometimes you just got to be louder. Sometimes you just need to be more patient. You know, the Apostle Paul had a great deal of authority that he could have relied on in addressing these issues in the church. He could have simply said, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to what I have to say. But as we noted last week in the introduction, he skips the formalities and just gives them his name. He begins this introduction, he begins this correction by saying, we give thanks to God always. We give thanks to God always. Without a prayerful contemplation of the divine blessings that we have from God, there will never be an attitude of thanksgiving in God's people. So long as the people of God refuse to have a prayerful attitude that meditates on the things that God has done for them, they will be a thankless people. And we know exactly what I'm describing The thing is that we see in children as they get so wrapped up and so eager about the presents that they receive that they forget to say thank you to the person that gave them the gift. How often do we do that in our lives? We're so thankful for the good things that God has provided us with that we forget or we neglect to say thank you to the one that has provided it to us. Why do we pray? What is the proper motivation of prayer? I said you cannot have true prayer without thanksgiving, and also you cannot have true prayer without the right intention starting the process. Prayer exists for the Christian so that their heart would be aligned with God's will But so often we think of prayer as a mechanism that Christians have or a tool that Christians have that we could make God's will align with our hearts. That's not sincere prayer. That's like a child that gets a toy and says, but I wanted the other toy. Christians who have grown into maturity know this truth and they know it well. Prayer aligns our heart to God's will. It will never align God's will to our hearts. The reference in this letter to constantly, we see that kind of in the middle, constantly mentioning you in your prayers. You know, that word only appears four times in the whole New Testament. The word for constantly, it only shows up four times in the entire New Testament. And three of those times are in 1 Thessalonians. This is the first occurrence. It will appear next in chapter 2, verse 13, and again in chapter 5, verse 17. The other occurrence is in the book of Romans when Paul is writing that I preach the gospel always constantly remembering you. The literal idea of constantly when we think of what Paul is writing, when he says that we constantly are making mention of you in all our prayers, what Paul is literally saying is now, well, this is funny. He's not literally saying I'm constantly praying with my eyes closed, is he? Oh, well, we know that. I mean, he commands Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13, that we are to constantly be in prayer. He's not telling us to walk around with our eyes closed, bouncing into things as we pray, and just kind of trust in the Spirit to guide us so that we don't wind up with a concussion. What he means is, what the Word breaks down to, is he's doing it, with nothing lacking. He's doing it through no obstacles. There are no obstacles that stand in His way. When He says constantly, He means there was nothing left to be thankful for. I looked into the well of blessing that I had in God, that, that God had delivered to me, that he had given to me. And, and there was nothing to pull out as I pulled each thing out of this well and I put it before me and I thanked God for it. There was nothing left. Thankfulness arises out of prayer having this thankful spirit that Paul has in in instructing these believers, this example of ministry that he's giving us even, it comes from a thankful spirit. I want to talk about these these different elements that come, how thankfulness is developed as we begin to pray. The, The first one is that, When we spend time in prayer and we make this a commitment, when it's a spiritual discipline that we don't relegate to the back shelf but that we take it seriously, it causes us to see how God has been faithful in answering our prayers. It causes us to remember how God is faithful in answering our prayers. The shelf that sits right above me at my desk is nothing but notebooks and journals. Most of the time, They're filled with absolute nonsense as I was getting my thoughts together. But in a lot of cases, what my notebooks are filled with are prayers that I've written out. The things that I've brought before God, and do you want to know why I write them down? It's pretty special when I look back a year ago for the things that I was praying for, and I see how God has answered those prayers. The psalmist said he is... Faithful forever, that is, His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. By recording my prayers, by looking at this, I'm able to see just how God has answered my prayers and I'm reminded that I have something to be thankful for. More than that, though, I'm reminded of the One who answered the prayers. It nurtures in my heart an adoration of God. An adoration of somebody that can love with so much earnestness and so much sincerity that his love could endure forever. That his faithfulness could extend to all generations. I remember the giver as I look at the gift and it causes worship to sprout up inside of me. It also forces me to make confession. We don't like to talk about confession. It's the bad word in the church. We're not supposed to talk about anything that's gone wrong. We're supposed to put on airs and everything's supposed to be hunky-dory and all right. We're not supposed to have critiques. We're not supposed to admit that we could have done things better. Loved ones, if you sincerely believe that, listen to me. You've moved so far away from the gospel that you don't even know what Jesus looks like. The gospel begins with admitting our failures. (laughs) The gospel starts with an acknowledgement of sin. The gospel first pricks the heart before it heals it. And when we run away from that, not only are we losing the best part of the gospel, but we're causing decay in our own hearts. We live committed to sinfulness, we run away from growth, we inhibit the spirit. When we admit our sins, when we are consistent in making confession, that's not just confronted with the acknowledgement that we could have done better, but it is accompanied by the truth, the reality, the promise that Jesus Christ has paid for those sins. That you don't have to feel guilty for those sins anymore. That those things have been set away from you. That the consequence of those sins have been paid that you are a new creation and a new person. You get to worship God as if none of those things had ever happened before. You get to make new decisions in your future. You get to be a better follower of Christ tomorrow and today. Prayer, when we are faithful and consistent in it, gives us a thankful spirit that is part and parcel to worship. It is the laying aside of the things that uncovered us. It is the acknowledging of God's power. And it restores inside of us a spirit that lacks zeal. It is what empowers missionaries to go into the mission field. It is what emboldens the church to proclaim the gospel. It is the answer to our needs and the only thing lying between us and receiving those blessings is that we don't make prayer a priority in our lives. It's not complicated. It's not burdensome. It's not cumbersome. It's right in front of us. And yet we're hesitant. We give thanks to God when? Sometimes. We give thanks to God occasionally. I took my glasses off, I'm sorry. Let me put them back on. We give thanks to God always. It's not limited, it's, it's always, it doesn't stop, it, it's, it's consistent. It is the power of the church. Well, There's a second way that we pray. We, we pray with the proper motivation. We pray with the motivation that our heart would be aligned to God's, that we wouldn't be held back by who we are, but that we would be empowered by who He is. We pray with the proper motivation. Second, we pray with personal expectation. Did you know prayer doesn't have to be selfless? Just because I'm saying that genuine prayer... Man, these are dirty. Just because I'm saying that genuine... No, it's okay. Genuine prayer aligns our hearts with God's will does not mean that prayer is not also personal to us, that there's not an expectation that comes from within us. The journalist asks why. We answered that question. But let me ask the next question, what? What do we lose when we fail to pray? What do we lose when we don't pray with personal expectation? What is at risk? We impoverish ourselves when we do not prayerfully reflect on what it means that we have experienced God, that we have experienced God's grace we impoverish ourselves. Because instead of living with a thankful spirit, we live constantly waiting for what's next. Everything that bad, everything that is bad that happens to us in our lives, well, that's something not to be thankful for. That's something to ask God to fix. When we pray with personal expectation, Things change. Such impoverishment produces the unthankful attitudes that are so common in American society today. Loved ones, we will only have a thankful attitude to the degree that we have a prayerful attitude. Our consistency, our commitment, our resolve to be a people of prayer is what directs our attitude. You see, the blessing of prayer is not just that we get to talk to God, not just that we get to experience Him, but that it changes us. Spend time being thankful. Spend time rejoicing and see what it does to your outlook on the world. Spend time praying to God. In writing this letter, I noted that there's some unique things about the way Paul is being thankful in 1 Thessalonians. But what amazes me is, I kind of hinted at this last last week, so you'll have to go back and listen to see what I mean. But the way he is gently bringing up the subject that needs to be talked about. There's a pastoral element in being a thankful person. First, I think Paul, in saying that he's thankful for the believers, constantly mentioning them in his prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these things, I think Paul is reestablishing his connection with the people that need to know that he loves them. That he didn't just come in for three months so that he could you know, do what he did and then get run out and leave them to their own devices. I think he's establishing that he loves them. But he's also revealing that his heart or his motivation is actually a pastoral concern that when he says things later on that are going to be hard for the church to hear because the church needs to hear things that are hard. They know he loves them. You know, it's so much easier to take correction from someone when we know that they love them. Michelle gets tired of being used in sermon illustrations. But I do not grow tired of using her as sermon illustrations. A long time ago, far, far in the distant past, we were fighting about something. And for those of you that don't know, my Scottish wife fights loudly. And I fight quietly. And um, I don't remember what it was. I don't even remember what the fight was about, actually. But Michelle told me this week about a moment that changed the way that she saw me in our relationship. There was no resolution in sight for the present disagreement. I was still upset. And I looked at her, and I was mad. And I said, I am angry, and I still love you. I'm angry, and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. But I still love you. Michelle sat on the bed, and she said, I feel sad, but I also feel safe. And I don't know what to do with that. It's much easier to hear from someone that we know loves us than it is to hear from someone who we think has an agenda. In acknowledging this thankful spirit and developing it and stirring it up and beginning this letter in this way, Paul is really conveying, I really do love you. I love you so much that you're not a footnote in my life, constantly without leaving anything lacking, without any obstacles, I pray for you. I pray for you, and it's not just that you would fix the things that you're doing wrong. I I pray that I'm thankful that you had a real interaction with God, that you really experienced His grace. I pray, and I am thankful that God has touched your life. There's also an exhortative function. What do I mean by that? That's a fun word. There's some advice built into Paul's prayer. Think about the things that he lists. I remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm thankful for about you. If someone comes to me and they say, Brother Derek, I'm thankful that you've stopped making A big deal of all the nerdy words in your sermons. You know what that says to me? Man, I really got to keep that up. I really want them to keep being thankful for that. I don't want to prove them wrong. See what Paul's doing? This church that's at risk, this church that is experiencing hardship, he's saying, I'm thankful that you have steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you think they want to keep that up? I'm thankful for your labor of love. Don't you think they want to keep that up? I'm thankful for your work of faith. When all else seems like it has no meaning, you work with faith. There's an encouraging function. Also, there's a bit of a preview in what Paul's going to discuss, but we'll talk about that later. I've given you kind of what, how Paul's using this as a rhetorical device in the letter, but let's look at what we can glean from it for today. Where the rubber meets the road. Four benefits of a prayerful lifestyle. Four benefits of living committed to prayer. First, it reveals your heart. It reveals your own heart condition. When we pray for things and we look back at our prayers and we listen to ourselves and we hear what we're praying for, it shows us what we're actually interested in. When we pray that God would change people around us, we're not really interested in their well-being, we're interested in having our own way. When we pray that God would uh, meet our circumstances, we're not actually interested in serving God, we're actually interested in God serving us. Of course, there's limitations to these things, and I don't mean them as hard and fast rules. Hopefully you understand that. But what is evident is that when we spend time in prayer, it reveals our heart condition. Just like Paul begins in prayer as a means of revealing his pastoral concern for the people that he's writing to, when we spend time in prayer, it reveals to us our own heart condition before God. Second, it reestablishes our connection with God. Just like beginning this letter in prayer for the people of Thessal- Thessalonica, the Thessalonians' connection was reestablished with Paul. When we spend time in prayer, it reestablishes our connection to God. It helps us to commune with Him because we've spent time with Him. There's ultimately only one thing that we need to recognize to be able to explain all of the distance between our prayers and God's will. The word is sin. What makes us, what keeps us from being Christ-like? It is sin. What causes arguing among you? It is sin. All of these things point towards the same condition that infects humanity, but our time in prayer allows us to reestablish our connection with God. It allows us to move past that, that we could have communion. It also resets our expectations. If we've prayed for something and we see that God is using that however He would determine it best to use it, it causes us to change our values or our expectations, what we might need to actually accomplish. It gives us clarity and vision for the future. And this is the best part. The benefit, the fourth benefit from being prayerful in our lives is that it restores forward momentum. So many people live their lives today stuck in the past. So many people spend their time thinking about the good things they did yesterday that they do nothing today. So many people wind up in lethargic positions because they are not interested in how God wants to use them now. They want to talk about how God has used them in the past. God is forward-looking. He is forward-moving. The work of the church is forward-moving. That passage in Matthew when Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. I just want to point one thing out really fast. The gates of hell are a defensive mechanism. The gates stay still. God's church marches forward. God's church doesn't stop. And so just when we think that we have failed or we can do nothing more because we're not as strong as we once were, when we spend time in prayer, we are reminded that God has a purpose for us today and He has a plan for us tomorrow and He's using the church to accomplish His means because He is Lord. He is in control of all of these things. This is why we give thanks to God and this is why Paul can pray, I give thanks constantly for all of you. I give thanks for all of you. Man, that's amazing. This is something that doesn't appear in Paul's normal thankfulness formula. That phrase, that adjective to say, I give thanks for all of you. He's not leaving anyone out. Now, that might seem like a small detail until you survey the rest of Paul's writings and you say that this is the only place, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, where he actually says this. And you think about the other things that he said in this letter and you start to piece it together. When Paul says, all of you, he's not just including the faithful Christians. He's not just including the people that we get along with. He's not just including the people who were in Thessalonica that were worthy of being thanked. He said, and just think about this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, if you want to just see that I'm not making this up. He instructs the church to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and to be patient with them all. When Paul says, I constantly mention all of you in my prayers... He's including the idle. He's including the faint-hearted. He's including the weak. He's including them all. Because he recognizes what God can do. He sees what God is capable of, and he doesn't limit God to his human limitations. I give thanks for all of you. Prayer is giving thanks to God more than it is letting God know what we need. You know what prayer is all about? Giving thanks to God. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 116, answers the question. It says, why should we pray? And the first part of the answer is that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us all. Thankfulness is the most important part of what God requires of us all. Prayer is how we do this. Paul sees the value of this intercessory prayer. He he sees the value of this kind of coming to God and and having people be thankful for you. He ends this letter by saying, pray for us. There is value in prayer. Prayer. we've answered why, we've answered who. Let's look at a third way that we pray. A third way that answers the question, who is the focus of our prayer? Mention mentioned this phrase all and how it connects. But if you really want to know how to pray, you need to pray with the proper motivation. You need to pray with a personal expectation that it will change your life. And you need to pray with a pervasive incorporation of all, including all things in your life, including all people in your life. Who is the focus of our prayer? Prayer is giving thanks to God. We've said that. We've talked about how this lays the foundation. Now let's talk about the things that we exclude from our prayers, the things that we exclude from being thankful for. It's easy to be thankful when God does what we think he should, thinks he should do. It's much harder when we need to be thankful for the things that are hard, for the things that trouble us or the things that burden us. To pray with a pervasive incorporation, I think, means recognizing that Thankfulness is not limited to what we deem worthy of thanks, but what God has graciously permitted. Did you know that sometimes God puts people in your life that are difficult to deal with because He wants you to grow? Did you know that sometimes God allows hardship to fall on your family because He wants you to grow? Did you know that one of the reasons of suffering, a theology of suffering, includes the fact that God uses the pain in our lives to remind us that we need a Savior? Do you thank God for the hard times? Hey, I mentioned that it was in a fight. Michelle realized I can be mad and love her at the same time. I don't want to pick on you too much, Michelle, but the reason she struggles with that is really because of the way that she was raised. She saw family members cut out. She didn't see this kind of unconditional love. She didn't see it reflected in the way that she was growing up. And so it's foreign to her. It's hard for her to imagine. The same problems that we see when new people come, they draw close to the gospel, and and they just think that, well, there's no way God could love me. He couldn't save me. I'm not like those other Christians. I don't fit in. Part of the problem is Christians make it hard to fit in. The other part of the problem is that we have entire generations that have been raised without an understanding of God's unconditional love for them. An example that the way God designed it is supposed to be demonstrated in the family, in the way that a father loves his children, in the way that a fa- husband loves his wife. All of these things are meant to demonstrate to the world what God's love actually looks like. And there's no way we will ever uh, ever achieve God's standard. But by what degree do we allow ourselves to fail? Are we thankful for our failures? Are we thankful for the times that we let people down? Are we thankful for the times that we let ourselves down? Are we thankful for the times that we were reminded that we are not enough? New Age Christian theology wants to teach you to say, I am enough. That's not true. Loved ones, we need to get comfortable with saying, I am not enough. I am not enough to overcome my own failures. I am not enough to provide for the people that need me. I am not enough. I need a Savior. I don't need Him just to save me, but I need Him to walk with me. I need Him to speak to me. I need Him to hold me up. I need Him in everything. The reason it's hard for people to include the good and the bad in their prayer is because we have fixated on following a model that has gone before us. I believe the biggest problem, the biggest failure of the church has been that we have set up an unrealistic mold of what it means to be a Christian. And so Christians, when they're striving for maturity, they're not striving for Christ-likeness. You know what they're striving for? They're striving for the mold of what they think Christianity is supposed to look like. Did you know that God, in creating the entire world, actually didn't put a lot of emphasis on things being all alike? There's not a snowflake that falls that can be paired with another snowflake. There's not a fingerprint that can be mistaken for another person's fingerprint. There aren't a set of butterflies that could trade one wing and still be perfectly symmetrical. Even the finest of objects that all our money could buy, artisan crafted pottery, never perfectly matches another hand-spun pot. God actually values uniqueness. He actually values what He's doing in your life that's different in somebody else's life. And this is why He brings the church together, not so we can all look alike, but so that we can bring our differences together. This is why no church looks alike. Did you know churches aren't supposed to look the same? But we have this obsession with programs that we need to do what other churches are doing and we need to match what other churches are doing and we need to be a part like everyone else. You know what we need to do? We need to be unique the way that God made us because that's where He's working. That's what He's changing. That's what He's doing. And the things that you're convicted about might be different than the things that someone else is convicted about. The things that you value might be different than the things that other people value. But you know what? God's using that the same way in you as He's using it in someone else. And if you can appreciate the uniqueness in yourself, you should be able to appreciate that uniqueness in someone else. Loved ones, we will never be able to truly be clay in our master's hands so long as we are more committed to fitting the mold of what we think a Christian should look like. It will never happen. You'll never grow in your faith. You'll never grow in your ministry. You'll never succeed in life so long as you are fixated on filling the mold that someone told you you should be. I'm not saying there aren't absolute parameters. I'm not saying there aren't absolute rules. This is our authority. Your tradition doesn't matter. Your expectation doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, a lot of times your tradition and your expectation gets in the way of actually reading this. God wants you to know him. You're not going to do that by trying to be somebody else. How do we pray? We pray by recognizing that God is the motivation. He is the person of prayer. We pray by having the right motivation. We pray by realizing that it's going to change us by having an expectation that something's going to change in here if we would just get down on our knees bow to the father and ask him to do his work we pray by including our whole life in our relationship with god i'll close with a question what question what 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 things have you held back from God? What part of your life have you decided He doesn't have control over? What struggles have you come up against that you've decided are too small for Him to care about? What do you realize this morning that God's bigger than you? And that He loves you? And that He made you? and that He wants a relationship with you. Father in heaven, as the church comes together this morning, as we consider the work that you have done, as we consider the work that you are doing, would you reignite us, Lord? Would you help us to fall in love with the gospel again? The whole gospel, the gospel that says, I failed. The gospel that says you paid for that failure. The gospel that says we have eternal life in you. Would you help us to be a people of prayer, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? sing number four.